this idea of the glory of God, right, and his goodness manifested before us. It's really, uh, like we've talked about, it's goodness that's always present. It's just a matter of whether or not uh, we're observing it, that we're being intentional uh, to lean into the goodness of God in our lives. And I think when things are good, it's, it's a little bit easier for us to do that, you know? And so, you know, we're seeing God work in Africa. We're seeing God work with the kids at Superstar and uh, thankful for, uh, you know, the love that we have in our lives with our family and being able to celebrate one another. And those are easy times to recognize the goodness of God and to really celebrate and to acknowledge the glory of God. And like we've talked about as we've been studying John, it, it's harder when things aren't going well, right? It's harder when there's persecution and there's, it's harder when there's trials and troubles that we face in our lives, uh, transitions that we go through that can be challenging, losses that we experience. Uh, those are the harder times that it's, um, that it, you know, where it's hard to, to, to acknowledge the goodness and glory of God. We, we know that it's there, but to voice it and to acknowledge it and allow it to really be part of our lives um, it, it really is challenging. And so this morning, the reason I bring that up is because um, I think that we have this really unique story about Christ in his betrayal and arrest. And so we're moving into, uh, right now, Easter season, right? Easter is uh, almost upon us. Um, and in the passage that we're in, in John, um, we're moving into uh, the arrest and betrayal and the suffering and the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection of Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, you want, can turn with me to John chapter 18, and that's where we'll be uh, this morning. But we want to look at the arrest and betrayal of Christ. Now, there's a lot of things, I think, in Scripture where <clears throat> there are examples for us to follow, right? That we see things in the life of Christ we see things in uh, the, the epistles and throughout scripture, and we say, you know, here's an example, right? A description of something that happened, and the principles can be implemented in my life, and they can be modeled. It's an example that, you know, as Christ was, then so also I might be, right? That through the power of the Holy Spirit, that I can model these things, and I think that in Scripture, we have a lot of different passages that speak to this idea of betrayal. And, and maybe you've experienced betrayal in your life. And you've experienced times when people that you thought were close to you have turned and done things that were hurtful or harmful towards us. And that can be deeply tragic. And it can be deeply impacting in our lives. And there's a lot of different passages that kind of speak to how we ought to respond to those who persecute us, those who hurt us, those that betray us. And there are principles within this passage that we want to look at, but uh, I want us to sort of consider a little bit of a different angle on John chapter 18 here, because I think that this passage has some principles for us to sort of implement in our lives but I think in a broader picture that this passage is not something that we model, but it's something that we worship in Christ. It is to say that Christ responds to betrayal in a way that is uniquely divine. And it's not really something that we can do in and of ourselves. 
And, and actually, I would say that the point of this passage is not to say, here's how Jesus was, and so this is how we should be too, although there are some principles that are there. But it is to say that this is how Jesus was, and Jesus is unlike any other because he is the Son of God. And so his response to things is uniquely supreme. It is uniquely godly, if you will. And so throughout the Gospels, we have this story of betrayal and arrest uh, that is captured in each of the Gospels, right? And the Gospels are, uh, you know, a, a compilation of the life of Christ. And, and, and as you know, there's different Gospel writers that come at the Gospel passages with different perspectives. And they see and highlight different things. All of it is consistent with one another, but they're highlighting and emphasizing different areas for different purposes. And so you've probably heard this before, right? That when we read the Gospel of Matthew, uh, it emphasizes Christ as king. And so Matthew uh, emphasizes the kingship of Christ. When you read the book of Mark, he emphasizes that Christ is a servant. And he emphasizes the service, the servant nature of Jesus. In the book of Luke, we see Christ as the son of man, and it emphasizes his humanity. And then here in the book of John, we have Christ being emphasized as the son of God, and it emphasizes his deity. It emphasizes the glory of his deity. And so it's within that framework that we want to kind of look at this passage, is the glory of Christ and the glory of his deity that comes out in how he deals with his betrayal and arrests. And so here in these events, we see the glory of the Son of God. His wondrous perfections shine through the ugliness. They shine through the darkness. They shine through the hatred. It shines through the pain and the suffering. And we know because he's the Son of God that that's why this is happening. And he has always exhibited total control. He always exhibits total control over people, over individuals, over groups, over circumstances. He has always demonstrated control over all of it. And that control continues into his arrest, into his mistreatment. It continues into his unjust trial, into his execution and his burial and his resurrection and all the way to his exaltation. And so when we talk about this passage, the reason I've entitled it the master of the moment is because Jesus mastered the betrayal and the arrest. He was the master of the moment. And, and we want to seek to model some of the things that Jesus did, right? That we want to be like him. But we also recognize that Jesus is set apart because he's not just another man, but he is the son of God. And so he interacts and deals with things in a way that is uniquely divine. And I want to highlight that this morning. The hour had come. And in one sense, it's the worst hour, right? In some sense, you might even say it is Satan's hour. But in another sense, you might say that it is the best hour, right? And that it is God's hour. And so let's look at John chapter 18 together. And I want to just sort of lay out four areas of how Jesus is divine, and we will move through this quickly, so um, let's just sort of read together. So John chapter 18, starting in verse 1, we see Jesus has divine resolve, divine 
resolve. Look in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, right? He ended his prayer. He ended the upper room discourse. He had spoken these words. And he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where the garden was, which he and his disciples entered. And so Jesus is done speaking, and he moves out of where he's at, out of the room that he's at. He goes across the brook of Kidron, and he moves to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is sovereign obedience. That in this moment, there is a divine resolve to obey the will of the Father. In verse 1, it says that he went out. It is divine resolve, divine determination, divine courage. He moves towards his own death. He is undaunted. He is unhesitating. He is courageous. It's a, it's a courage that is even greater than that of a martyr dying for a good cause. It, it, that's a noble thing, and many have done it. But to go to death that is not just a physical death, but a death that will also absorb the full wrath of God for all people throughout all of human history, that is divine. And God will unleash that massive wrath in a period of three hours. And he will be forsaken by God and he is moving towards that event. That pure, spotless, and eternally sinless son of God. And he does it with resolve and a divine level of courage. And think about this when he's crossing over the Kidron Valley, right? If, you, if you've visited there, if you know much about it, the Kidron Valley is right outside the temple ground. And so on that day, this is the middle of Passover. And there is this massive slaughter of Passover lambs that is happening. And they would slaughter these lambs and the blood would drip down the side of the altar and it would flow into these channels that would flow out the back of the temple, uh, the temple rock. And it would flow down into the Kidron Valley. And so, no, no doubt, when he and his disciples are crossing this brook, this tiny little brook, it would have been, at this point in time, it would have been bright red with blood with the blood of these sacrificed lambs. We don't know exactly how many lambs at this particular time were being slaughtered, but we do have record of a Passover that took place 30 years later. So that's, I mean, in the big picture, it's not that much longer. And they, we have record of it that they sacrificed 256,000 lambs. 250, so there's just this blood that is being poured out, right? And it's flowing down these channels and it's flowing out the back of the temple and it's going down the temple slope into the Kidron Valley. And this is what Jesus is crossing over. He steps across all that blood knowing that that blood was not sufficient but that he was going to have to sacrifice his own blood and that his sacrifice would have been on his mind. It was not unknowingly. It was not unwittingly. But he went to the garden knowing full well what was awaiting him. The reason that he went there was because he knew that the garden was going to be where Judas was coming. He knew that that's where Judas was going to come and betray him. Because it was a place of betrayal. It was also a place of obedience. Sovereign obedience for Jesus. And here's the point, right? Is that Jesus is no victim John wants us to know that Jesus went there because he knew that Judas would know that that's where he was going to be. He was no victim. He moved to his betrayal resolutely. 
He was not tricked, right? He was not deceived. He was not fooled. He is not taken by surprise. It is a divine resolve. But even beyond that, then, there is a divine power. Look at verses 2 through 6. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, knowing, right, divine resolve, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell on the ground. See, there was a divine power in his omniscience. Jesus knew who would be there. Think about this group. It's a really pretty amazing group. You have the officers. That's basically the temple police. There were hundreds of temple police And they were there to secure the crowds. They were there to make sure everything was order. And he got the officers and he got the temple police to come. It also talks about a band of of soldiers. And so this was a a band of, or a cohort, some translations say. And it's the Roman soldiers. So not just the Jewish police, but also the Roman soldiers. And a band or a cohort could have been anywhere from 200 to 600 men. And so think about this. They're traveling through with these hundreds. We don't know exactly how many of Jewish police, temple officers. And they're traveling along with this Roman band, two to 600 soldiers that were fully ready for, ready for whatever was going to happen, right? Ready for battle. And probably as they're traveling along, they probably picked up some other people along the way. And so you could have guessed that this, this is not like in the movies where you have like 12 soldiers that show up. This was probably realistically close to a thousand officers and soldiers that showed up. And what's interesting to me here is that they had torches, right? So if you know the timeline, right, in Passover, it, it would have been a full moon, and, and, and there's, you know, there's no electricity. Like th- This would have been a bright evening where it would have been easy to see what was going on. And yet they brought salt torches. Why? Because they're, they're in a, a vineyard. There, there's trees all over the place, right? And so they were anticipating that they were going to run. They were anticipating a fight. They were anticipating that they were going to have to chase them down and sort of track them through the trees and that they were going to have to bring them to submission, But what do we know? That's not what happened. See, they came with full force and they came under full command because they knew his power. They had seen him drive people out of the temple just days prior. They had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They had seen him perform miracles. They had seen the power of Jesus and they came prepared. You know, just as a quick side note, there is many people who see the power of Jesus and still adopt unbelief. Seeing is not always believing. People knew the power of Jesus and they still sought to arrest him and ultimately reject him. They knew his power. They knew his popularity. They were prepared for riots. The only one that's specifically mentioned there is Judas. 
And Judas knew his power more than any of them. But what's interesting here is that his life and his ministry of power was rooted in his name. Jesus doesn't wait for anybody to say anything. What we don't have recorded in this particular passage is that, you know, Judas approaches him first and Jesus says, are you going to betray me with a kiss? And that's what Judas does, right? He betrays him with a kiss. And we know this, right? If, if you're an inferior, you kiss somebody's hands. If you're a servant, you kiss somebody on the foot. But if you have an intimate, loving relationship with someone, you kiss their face. And actually, the word that we have in the text in the other gospel is that Judas kissed him with a kiss that was multiple kisses of affection. It was a sign of love and affection and intimacy with which Jesus was betrayed. But after that, then he asks this question. He asks, who is it that you seek? He wants to hear them give an account. Literally, he's asking for sort of modern day, he's asking for a warrant. Who are you here to arrest? Who do you have the right to arrest? Whose name is on the warrant? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am. Literally, in the Greek, it is I am. It is the name of God that identifies who they're looking for. And what's interesting here, right, is in verse 6, it says that they drew back and they fell to the ground. All these hundreds of officers and soldiers collapsed in a heap on the ground. These great, strong soldiers, these angry, hostile, aggressive Jewish police, the religious leaders, the chief priests, they all went down. Maybe this is where the idea for dominoes came from. I don't know. <laughs> but I can just imagine, right? Not just a couple of people, but they all fell down. This is the power of Jesus' name. John, again, is not going to let us see Christ in any scene where he isn't full of glory. He gives the name of God. He declares his deity. All authorities and powers are literally falling backwards at the power of his name. One single unarmed figure. And they were armed to the teeth. They were ready for war. And he simply speaks his name and they collapse. Do you know that there's power in the name of Jesus? Amen. It's, it's not just sort of this metaphorical idea. It's not something that's just, you know, there's power in our prayers, although there is. But there is power in the name of Jesus. It's divine power. And then thirdly, we see a divine love. Because Jesus is operating with great intentionality. Look at verses 7 through 10. It says, so he asked them again. You know, they give them time maybe to get back up. I don't, I don't know. But he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malachus. And so in this, we see this divine love, right? How is this love happening? Well, it's because Jesus is protecting them positionally. 
It is his position that protects him very literally and spiritually in this passage. At this point, he says, you know, if it's me that you seek, then let these other people go away. That in the midst of his trial, or not trial, in the midst of his betrayal and his arrest, who's he thinking about? He's thinking about his disciples. His, his love for his disciples is being shown. It's being poured out. He says, you have no official warrant to arrest my disciples. He, he heard their orders. Who, am, who are they here for? Jesus of Nazareth. He had them repeated. It was given twice. And he says, you're here for me. Let them go. And he's acknowledged it. He's acknowledged that they've given the orders twice. And so now they've repeated it. They've declared that they have no right to lay their hands on the disciples. See, Jesus was protecting them. He knew that if they were arrested, listen, we already know that when this was done, they fled and even Peter was denying Jesus. It was was rough on their faith. And yet Jesus was protecting them. He knew that if they had gotten arrested, that they wouldn't have been able to hold up. He knew how much they would be able to bear. They knew how much, he knew how much they would be able to take. And Jesus protected them. He protects us by his position of being our substitute, of taking on the penalties that we deserve. He protects us from that which is beyond what we can bear, both spiritually as well as figuratively. It's kind of like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 It says, no temptation will ever come to you such as what is common to man. And yet God will make a way of escape that you may be able to, you know it, to bear it, to stand up under it. See, God protects us by his position. Jesus is active in our salvation. Here's the reality, right? Is that if I could lose my salvation... I would. (laughs) If that was possible, I would. Because my faith fails sometimes. Because I deal with things and I struggle with things and I I keep being drawn back to sin. And if it isn't for the power and the seal of the Holy Spirit and the redemption of Christ through his blood, I would be lost. I would be lost on my own. And so Jesus protects us. He is active In those things. The reason that we go to heaven is not just because God says it, but it's because He sees to it. He is active in it. It is a supreme protective love. And so you would have expected, right? Peter would have been like, wow, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for protecting us. I'm just going to kind of step back and let you do your thing. But what does Peter do, right? He does what so many of us probably would be at least thinking to do. And he pulls out a sword and he tries to basically take out uh, the high priest's servant, Malachus. And it's a good thing that Malachus had decent sort of reactions, right? And it just kind of got his ear maybe. Um, But Peter reacts. And I think there's so many times that I'm just like Peter, right? God says, you know what? I'll protect you. I got this. Just stay calm. Stay back. Let me handle this. And yet in those moments, it's like, no, I I need to do something. I need to take control. I need to fight this battle. And in the process, I subject myself to greater harm and greater penalty. You know, sometimes we think that we can be kind of big stuff and we're stepping out of Christ's protection. 
And we think that somehow we're able to take on the hostile world on our own. But when we try to do things on our own, it doesn't really end well. And this is where we see the last part, which is his divine righteousness. That even in his moment of betrayal, even in his moment of arrest, Jesus is supremely righteous. Look at verses 11 through 14. It says, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. It's kind of funny. I don't have time to go into that, but Caiaphas thought that it was his idea that one man should die for all of the people. (laughs) Not so much, right? But look at this. Even in the midst of this, Jesus upholds the law. He's righteous. He he basically tells Peter, like, what are you doing? He, He was upholding God's law. When he repairs the ear and heals the ear of Malchus, he's really saving Peter. Why? Because he was upholding Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. It says, if you slay a man, you give up your life. God instituted capital punishment. Our Lord upheld capital punishment, even in the case of Peter. He's basically saying, Peter, if you take this man's life, then, then you know, they will take your life, and rightly so. There was righteousness in what he was doing, and it was his submission. They didn't need torches. They didn't need to hunt him down. He wasn't going to run and try to hide. There were times when the hour was not right that Jesus was able to slip away, but this was the hour that God had established for him. And so Jesus humbly submitted to his own betrayal and arrest. And Jesus' submission was voluntary and joyful. And so with that, we see a display of his glory. Verse 11 says, The cup which the Father has given me shall I not drink. He's talking about the cup of wrath, the cup of fury, the cup of vengeance, the vengeance of God. And he says, shall I not drink? This is a voluntary, willful submission to the will of God out of love for mankind. There is no victim. This is the all-glorious Son of God willingly, voluntarily, in an act of supreme obedience to which he agrees joyfully giving himself up in our place. The Father has given me the cup to drink for the sake of all the people that he has given me to love everlastingly. Shall I not drink of it? So here's the the idea right for us. Is we want to respond well when we enter betrayal, when we experience when we experience betrayal. Right? And those that hurt us and persecute us, we want to respond as Christ would want us to, as Scripture calls us to. But in this passage, let's just take time to reflect that Jesus was uniquely God in how he responds to his betrayal. And he did it in a way that was supremely divine for you and I. And we are the ones that deserve it. 
We're the ones that deserve to be arrested and to suffer and to die for our sins. But Jesus took it on on our behalf as our substitute. The things that you and I hate, the things that have hurt us the most and cut us the deepest, the betrayal and wrongful accusations that we have endured, those are the things that we despise. And those are the things that we avoid. Those are the things that we desire to call out the most. But Jesus, he walked into those things full of resolve, full of power, full of love, and full of righteousness. And so as we come into the Easter season, as we meditate on the words here in John 18, let us consider the divine nature with which God handled his betrayal and arrest so that we can glorify him as the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning once again, and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the example that was given by Jesus as he intentionally and with resolve and courage walked towards his death. That it was a willful, humble, obedient submission to your will and to our best. And God, we thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made. And God, may we give you praise in recognition of the glory of Jesus Christ. God, we are so thankful for who he is and how he has delivered us from our sin. And so, God, we give you praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.